Last Friday, as you may or may not know, was the winter solstice. So now we're beginning this transition from winter towards spring. And in my first Dharma talk here a few weeks ago, I spoke about transitions and named how, generally speaking, mainstream culture doesn't manage transitions very well. So tonight I wanted to start just by acknowledging this transition, this gradual shift in very small increments from the shortest, darkest day of the year to increasingly longer and lighter days. And this isn't just a poetic way of starting off the talk by connecting it to the natural environment. It's relevant to how we experience the overall arc of our Dharma practice too. So no matter whether we started meditating a couple of years ago or several decades ago, the general movement, the general development over that time is one from struggle to ease. And I want to emphasize the word general because as these shifts in our practice are experienced, just like the changing seasons, they might seem so incremental as to be invisible, at least on a daily basis. But if we step back and look at the bigger picture, I'm confident that every one of you here tonight can recognize significant changes in how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to each other, how we relate to the world. So that's very broadly the theme that I'd like to explore tonight, this natural arc of the practice from suffering to healing, happiness, and freedom. So in some ways, this talk is part two following on from the talk I gave last week when we were on the other side of the solstice. And back then, for those of you who are here, I spoke about dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. I named a few different types of dukkha, and I suggested some strategies for relating it to it more skillfully, using the model of the two wings to awakening, being wisdom and compassion. And I suggested that we need both of these wings to be in balance if we're going to fly. So the wisdom wing sees, understands that dukkha is impermanent and impersonal. And the compassion wing, particularly self-compassion, helps us to relate to dukkha more skillfully with kindness, care and courage instead of our habitual resistance to it. So tonight, now we're on the other side of the solstice and we're shifting towards more light. I want to explain, to explore the movement from dukkha to sukha. Sukha being the Pali word for well-being and happiness. And in this context, I'm using the word sukha as shorthand for all kinds of skillful qualities of heart and mind. So to name just a few that you might be familiar with, the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi or stability of mind, 
and equanimity. The four Brahmaviharas of kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity, and the ten parami, generosity, ethical conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, metta, and equanimity. There are many other skillful qualities I could list, but what they all have in common is that they're experienced as pleasant. That's what makes them sukha. Now, at times that pleasantness might be quite subtle, but if we really pay attention to these skillful states, we can notice there is a background feeling of well-being or happiness alongside whatever the state is. So all of us here are in the process of making this shift from dukkha to sukha. And I wanted to not just acknowledge this, but to appreciate it, even celebrate it. Because this is a time of year when generosity and gratitude are encouraged in many different cultures around the world. So just an invitation to see if you can let it in, to let in this shift from dukkha to sukha and take some joy in what we're doing here together. Before I go any further, I just want to acknowledge that this orientation to joy can be a stretch for many of us. Even though intellectually we might understand that sukha, happiness, ease, freedom are the goal of this path, Often there's some very deep individual and societal conditioning that hinders us from accessing that dukkha, sorry, that sukha. And this has been true in my own practice. And I've also noticed it in working with different students around the world. So I'd like to begin just by sharing some of the ways that I see this conditioning, these deep sankharas or mental formations that get in the way of this shift from dukkha to sukha. The first is the inbuilt negativity bias that I've mentioned a few times now. The understanding that biologically, as a species, we're almost hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant than what's pleasant. Because what's unpleasant has the potential to threaten our lives. Whereas pleasant experiences are mostly benign and safe, so they don't grab our attention in the same way. So most of you are probably familiar with Rick Hansen's famous quote that our, our brains are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. But then on top of this basic biological negativity bias, we often add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. So for example, in dominant mainstream and capitalist culture, we put a lot of emphasis on individualism and materialism. So there's a lot of pressure to have, to get, to gain, to attain, to achieve, to succeed, and to become someone special. 
And because of this conditioning, it's very common that we unconsciously turn our Dharma practice into a giant self-improvement project. If I can just get rid of this habit, or if I can just become more like that person, or if I can just get closer to my mythical notion of what Nibbana is, then I'll be okay. But when we bring that kind of striving mentality to practice, It's hard to recognize that underneath it, the underlying motivation is one of aversion, which only compounds the suffering and creates more dukkha. And we shouldn't underestimate the power of this conditioning, because if we don't see through it, it can drive us relentlessly and often leaves us feeling deeply inadequate. It traps us in very binary attitudes of good and bad, right and wrong, success and failure. And we bring these into our Dharma practice. We become desperate to get it right, terrified of doing it wrong, worried about wasting our time, doing everything we can to at least look like an accomplished meditator. Does that sound familiar or is it just me? So as an antidote to that binariness and beliefs about right and wrong, that's one reason I've been encouraging, since I've been here, this attitude more of exploring and enjoying. So being willing to experiment, to try things out, to listen to your own experience and to learn from it, even enjoy it, instead of constantly judging and assessing and criticizing or condemning it. So paradoxically, I'm very serious about the need for lightness. But there's a caveat. And this orientation to exploring and enjoying doesn't mean that we abandon our goals. Instead, we learn to discern the difference between aspirations and expectation. So aspiration involves setting an intention to move towards a healthy and skillful goal. Whereas expectation hardens into a more will-driven grasping after results. And as you might have noticed in your own practice, in the quietness and the stillness of the forest refuge, we can more easily connect with a deeper sense of purpose. And at times, beautiful aspirations start to make themselves known. But often what happens next is the intellect latches onto that aspiration and tries to impose its will on it. And then it morphs into an expectation that torments us and starts to reinforce those same old stories about not being good enough and so on. So because at times this distinction between aspiration and expectation can be quite subtle, in my own practice I found it helpful to pay attention to the body and to pay attention to the mind. And particularly in terms of the mind, to notice the amount and the type of chatter in the mind. So I mentioned this briefly on Monday morning yesterday, If there are a lot of I-based thoughts creeping into my practice, 
that's often a sign that this aspiration has started to congeal into an expectation. So I start to hear inner dialogue along the lines of, I want this to happen. I don't want that to happen. I should be experiencing this. I shouldn't be experiencing that. Why am I going to, when am I going to let go of X? And when am I going to achieve Y? And have I got to Z yet? So these, if you start to notice these kind of proliferating thoughts based around a sense of I, then you might use that strategy that I suggested yesterday of just playing with taking out the personal pronouns and dropping down to the emotions, the moods and the mind states that might be underneath all of that proliferation. So in the example that I just gave, instead of I want this to happen and so on, we change the mental noting to become hmm, wanting being known, resistance being known, Ah, self-judgment is like this, comparing mind is like this, ah, moment of spaciousness being known, and so on. And hopefully you can hear from in the difference between when there's a lot of I referencing and when we take that out, did you notice them a little bit more sort of spaciousness or ease? So we can start to train ourselves into that spaciousness. And the other area we want to pay attention to is the physical sensations in the body. Again, if we bring mindfulness to the effect on the body, we might recognize a subtle or not so subtle tension when there is a lot of eye-based thinking. Perhaps there's a slight clenching of the jaw or tightening of the small muscles around the eyes or a contraction in the belly. That tightening into expectation feels very different energetically than when there's just a simple aspiration or orientation towards experiencing more sukha. Now on one level it's obvious that if we're getting all tense and tight in our quest to experience more ease, then we might be going about it in the wrong way. So this is how Gil Fronsdell describes this process of distinguishing between aspiration and, and expectation. He says, The sensitivity and awareness that come from mindfulness practice support the discovery of our healthy desires and aspirations. Mindfulness not only helps us get in touch with our aspirations, but it helps prevent aspiration from becoming craving. Even though what we might want is healthy and appropriate, if we're not careful, this desire can manifest as craving. Noticing the physical and mental tension, pressure and uneasiness that come with craving makes it easier to distinguish aspiration from craving. And one way aspiration becomes craving is through expectation. At its best... Aspiration has an openness to possibility without a need for anything to happen. This doesn't mean that we don't act on our aspirations, 
but that we don't cling to their success. There is something satisfying and wonderful in a healthy aspiration that is not dependent on outcome. So you might have heard in that quote that there's a balance between setting a clear intention and then holding it lightly and not grasping after results. And at this stage of the practice, we need to really refine our virya, our energy or effort, so that we don't overshoot the mark. For many people, one of the most challenging aspects of meditation practice is the paradox that the deepest freedom comes from letting go and letting be, not from doing But because our cultural conditioning is always to be doing, 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 it's easy at times to miss those more refined states of calm and quiet and tranquility. We're so used to struggling with the hindrances that when they do eventually quieten down, we might think that nothing's happening. So sometimes people say, oh, nothing's really happening. What should I do now? We try to metaphorically push the river instead of settling back and refining our mindfulness so that we can experience those more refined states of heart and mind more fully. So as we start to come into the terrain of the third noble truth, which is the ending of suffering, we start to experience more sukha. And it can start to reveal many different layers of conditioning about ourselves and our Dharma practice. And one very common assumption, and often unseen, is that practice, Dharma practice, is somehow supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, difficult, even painful. And if it's not those things, If it's neutral or perhaps even pleasant, then we must be doing something wrong. We're obviously not working hard enough or going deep enough or not seeing clearly enough. And that underlying assumption often results in a lot of unconscious resistance, even to the suggestion that joy and enjoyment might actually be a necessary part of the practice. So it's just an invitation as you're listening to this talk to see if you do notice different views and perceptions and assumptions and beliefs about what real Dharma practice is supposed to look or feel like. There's another often unconscious attitude that affects our ability to experience sukha. And that is due to the fact that Being able to experience happiness does require a certain openness and even vulnerability. So it can be a surprising act of courage to let ourselves open to ease and happiness and peace, knowing that they're impermanent states and at some point they will end. So some of you probably know the work of Brene Brown, who's a research professor of sociology, and she's spent at least 16 years studying courage and vulnerability, empathy and shame. And during the course of her research, she found a very clear link between the capacity to feel vulnerable and the ability to experience joy. 
So in an interview she says, When we wake up every morning and armor up and say, I'm not going to let myself be hurt. I'm not going to let myself be seen. I'm not going to let myself be emotionally wrung out. I'm going to protect my vulnerability. When we lose that capacity for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. Because in those moments where we do feel joy, then the first thing we think is, "Uh uh-oh, you will not blindside me, vulnerability. I will beat you to the punch. I'm going to stand here and squander this incredible moment with my child or my partner or this incredible moment about my promotion and I'm going to imagine the worst case scenario. That way, if it does happen, it will hurt less. And she goes on to say, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. So it's not surprising then that many of us have an unconscious fear of happiness and that we bring this with us into our meditation practice. And unfortunately, at least in my experience, this attitude is sometimes inadvertently reinforced by the way the Buddha's teachings are presented. Now, it is definitely true that the Buddha warned us over and over not to get attached to sense pleasures. But what isn't emphasized as much is that he very definitely instructed us to cultivate skillful and pleasant mental states states of ease and happiness and peace, of sukha. So because of that uh, bias in the way I heard the teachings, I developed in my own practice early on an unconscious belief that any kind of pleasant experience was inherently wrong and bad. And I was so worried about getting attached to enjoyment that for a while I didn't allow myself to feel any kind of pleasure at all. I didn't see that I was afraid of it and that I'd unconsciously developed a wrong view that pleasant experience automatically leads to attachment. So I'd uh, developed a kind of attachment to non-attachment and I tried to disconnect from pleasant experiences and I would feel guilty if I accidentally experienced any. Perhaps some of you have been through that phase of practice yourself, so you might know that it's not very sustainable because practice without sukha becomes very dry, even painful, and it takes a lot of effort just to keep going. And although at that time I was vaguely aware that my practice had become more and more of a struggle, I convinced myself that I was practicing right effort. And back then, when I heard that phrase, right effort, I assumed that it meant blood, sweat, and tears. Because I was focusing so much on the word effort, and I really had no idea about the right part of it. So it was another little while before I finally read and understood the Buddha's definition of what he actually meant by right effort. And I discovered that it was much more nuanced than I'd assumed. 
So I think Caroline may have mentioned right effort the other day, but when the Buddha was asked to define it, he talked about it in terms of four distinct aspects. I'll give you just a brief reminder of what they are now. And again, you might notice within them this same shift from dukkha to sukha. So the first aspect of right effort is to restrain the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states, which is quite a tongue twister. But basically it's about trying to prevent unskillful mind states from coming up in the first place. The Buddha was a realist and he knew that there would be times when in spite of our efforts, we might fall into some kind of unskillful state. So the second effort is to abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen. And again, the sequence of these four is significant. So first, with the first two, we clear out the afflictive states so that almost literally there is more room in the heart and the mind for the skillful states to arise. So then the third effort is to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. The skillful mental qualities that I listed earlier as being sukha, well-being and happiness. And with practice, we do learn how to incline the heart and the mind in the direction of these skillful mental states and to stay there for longer, which leads to the fourth effort, to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So the fourth great effort is to maintain, develop and perfect skillful mental states once they have arisen. And I want to highlight that within these four great efforts there's a natural progression that starts with releasing unskillful mental states and strengthening the capacity to develop skillful states. And all of us here are experienced meditators, so we can probably recognize this same pattern of development if you look back over the arc of your own practice. I'm guessing that if you think back to the early days, the afflictive mental states were much more common than they are now. Which is not to say that they never come up anymore, but in general, most people find that as they continue to meditate, over the months and years, unskillful states tend to come up less often. And when they do come up, they're less intense and they don't stick around for nearly as long as they used to. Is that true for all of you here? Anybody not experience that? Great, so that's reassuring. Over that time frame, we can see generally speaking, the shift from dukkha to sukha. So just as a summary, I'd like to offer the four great efforts that, in the way that Ajahn Suchito phrases them, as to put aside what you find is unhelpful, to guard the mind against unskillful influences, to establish what you sense is good, and to support and encourage skillful influences. 
So how might we encourage and support skillful influences? Last week when I spoke about dukkha, I suggested that cultivating compassion and especially self-compassion could be a very powerful resource that helps us to navigate suffering more skillfully. And in a similar way, I'd like to offer the practice of mudita, usually translated as sympathetic or appreciative joy, as a support for developing sukha. I think as most of you know, mudita and compassion are two of the four Brahma-Vihara meditation practices, the sequence of four uh, meditations that cultivate the skillful qualities of metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So last week when I was talking about uh, compassion, I half-jokingly talked about compassion as being the love child of metta and dukkha. Because when metta or kindness turns towards suffering, it flowers as karuna or compassion. And in a similar way, we can think that when metta or kindness turns towards success and happiness, it flowers as mudita or appreciative joy. So in this way, mudita is the love child of metta and sukha. So mudita is the heart's capacity to feel happiness, gladness, joy, with an emphasis on the, cap- on the capacity to feel gladness for someone else's happiness. And it also includes flavors of appreciation and gratitude. So it can be a very uplifting and inspiring quality. So Caroline and an English colleague of hers, Paul Burroughs, have put together a beautiful description of all four of the Brahma-Vihara practices that she may have shared with someone, with some of you already. Tonight I'll just read her definition of mudita. They say, mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, equanimity brings the heart back into balance. So mudita is the love that celebrates, and traditionally it's a celebration of other people's happiness and good fortune. And although at first this might sound counterintuitive, as we experiment with this practice of appreciating other people's happiness, we start to discover that it increases our own happiness as well. There's a well-known quote from the Tibetan master Shantideva that expresses this very beautifully. He says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So this capacity to celebrate other people's happiness brings us many benefits. 
when we are able to activate mudita, our sense of separation and lack can diminish. We feel more connected to other people, kinder and more generous. And these are all skillful mental states that help wisdom to develop because they show us the truth of interconnectedness and of anatta, not self. Because when we stop taking our problems so personally, we recognize that all beings want to be happy, just as we do. And mudita can act as a powerful catalyst for the awakening factor of rapture or joy. So in this way, it can directly support the practice of insight. So how do we actually do it as a Brahmavihara practice? Traditionally, it's taught pretty similarly to metta practice, where we silently recite phrases that cultivate this uh, state of joy in relation to different categories of people. And some traditional phrases are, may your happiness and joy continue. May it never leave you. May it continue to grow. And for many people, though, as I said earlier, even the word joy can feel like a stretch, just not part of my emotional capacity or repertoire. And that's partly why I mostly use the word mudita, untranslated, so you can put in whatever word feels more accessible for you, perhaps gladness or appreciation or lightness, if not actual delight. Because mudita doesn't have to be some big ecstatic bliss state. It can be very light and fleeting and subtle. And we can start to incline the heart and mind in that direction by consciously orienting to aspects of our lives that are going well and that we can appreciate in a very immediate way. So it can be a a good training just to get into the habit of noticing in the present moment any aspects of your experience that register as pleasant without grasping after them or pushing them away, but simply noticing pleasant and allowing any natural responses of appreciation to be there. And in case you uh, need any help with this orienting to gratitude and appreciation, on previous retreats I've sometimes asked the meditators to leave me notes about anything they've noticed during the course of the day that they've appreciated about being on retreat. So it's kind of a way of crowdsourcing mudita. And I'd like to share a few examples with you from previous retreats, just notes that people left for me. I asked, what do you appreciate? And they said, my body walking without pain. Clean, dry laundry. The flock of wild turkeys swarming through the courtyard. Feeling hot water on my skin when taking a shower. Warm sun coming through the window the taste of delicious food at lunch, time away from my family, to receive good guidance and support for my practice, to be alive 
healthy, with an upright mind, surrounded by friends, enjoying ease and freedom. Appreciating all the efforts of the cooks and staff who are taking such good care of us. So, so grateful for the opportunity to practice the Dhamma in such a beautiful, nurturing environment. So those are just a few almost random samples. But even right now, you might like to see if you can find a few of your own. So I like to offer just a couple of moments of silence and see if you can tune in to just some moments some aspects that you can appreciate right now that bring a pulse of gratitude or appreciation. And if you are able to connect with one or two things that you can appreciate in this moment, you might notice what effect that has on the heart, on the body, the mind. Perhaps just a little sense of opening or warmth or spaciousness. So this is one way we might begin our mudita practice by tuning in to any aspect of our experience in the moment that brings a sense of sukha, of ease, well-being, happiness. And then traditionally, in the way this practice is usually taught, we take that quality of mudita and we offer it to a sequence of different people, starting with someone we're close to, who's currently enjoying some good fortune. And then we move on to the benefactor, followed by a neutral person, then a so-called difficult person, and then finally all beings. So traditionally, the basic form of the practice is the same as for both metta and compassion, but with one key difference, that in traditional mudita practice, we don't include ourselves. And when I first heard this, I thought it was strange because everywhere else in the teachings, the Buddha encourages us to make no distinction between self and other. So it didn't make sense to me that everywhere in the other three Brahmavihara practices, we include ourselves, but here with mudita, we have to leave ourselves out. So I asked a Pali scholar at the Bari Center for Buddhist Studies what this word mudita actually means. And he told me that it simply means gladness. And the word itself didn't originally include any sense of for another. And at about this same time, I discovered that the way, the um, traditional way of teaching mudita uh, developed later in the Buddhist tradition after the lifetime of the Buddha. So in the Buddha's own lifetime, the way that all of these Brahma-Vihara practices were taught were more as ways of cultivating an energy in the heart and then radiating it out. And so there's a traditional chant sutta known as the suffusion of the divine abidings that some of you are probably familiar with. 
that evokes all four Brahma-Vihara qualities. I'll just read you the one for Mudita, but the rest are the same. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with gladness, mudita, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So this sense of mudita being pervasive and encompassing the entire world starts from our own heart centers. So in this way, it does include oneself. And in my own practice, I got interested in finding ways to get this sense of gladness going through orienting a little towards self-appreciation as an antidote to the kind of self-judgment that I was talking about earlier. And at about this same time that as I exploring Mudita, I found a teaching that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. And in this sutta, Mahanama goes to the Buddha and asks him to give some teachings that are suitable for a layman like himself, who is described as living in a household that is dusty and crowded with children. And the Buddha said he should contemplate six things every day. And that if he did this, he would develop the kind of rapturous joy that leads to deep concentration which in turn leads to clear seeing and insight. And the six things that the Buddha advised Mahanama to contemplate every day were first, the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dhamma, the good qualities of the Sangha. And then Mahanama's own generosity, and then Mahanama's own good qualities, and then the good qualities of the devas or the angels. And in that list, what interested me most was the Buddha's instruction to Mahanama that he should practice recalling his own generosity and his own good qualities, his own virtue. And at the time, I found just the idea of recollecting my own good qualities pretty confronting. So maybe I'm a bit masochistic. I decided to try it on as a practice. And I did find that at first it was going against quite a lot of individual and social and cultural conditioning too. So I grew up in England and New Zealand and in both those countries there's a lot of social pressure to not blow your own trumpet. I think in the US we say don't toot your own horn but it's the same basic idea. And in Australia, where I also spend a lot of time, there's something called the tall poppy syndrome, where anybody who stands out from the crowd basically gets their head lopped off. And in Japan, apparently they have a saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. So it's not surprising that we might have a little bit of fear about being seen or moving anywhere into the terrain of recognizing our own good qualities, even to ourselves. But as the Buddha pointed out to Mahanama, when we can just openly acknowledge our strengths as well as our weaknesses, then those strengths become a resource, something that helps us to develop confidence on this path. 
So when I first started trying to do this, it felt a little bit foreign and unnatural, and I thought I'd have to really take care that it didn't make me feel inflated or special. But I was surprised to find that the opposite was true, that the more I felt just a basic sense of connection to my own good qualities as well as the rest, the more I could appreciate other people's good qualities too. I felt less competitive and more at ease. And I felt a sense of kinship instead of comparing mind. The other surprising thing was that the more I contemplated what I might have thought of as my own good qualities, I realized that they didn't actually belong to me at all. Some of them were instilled from my parents or my teachers some from my friends, from the Buddha's teachings, from meditation practice. And they were all arising due to causes and conditions, just like everything else. So I couldn't really take them on as being mine. But just as the Buddha described, I did feel more at ease and happier and clearer when I could be aware of my strengths as well as my weaknesses. So coming back to where I started this talk, being more connected to my inner resources helped me to have more capacity for compassion too. And the emotional resilience that comes from this helps us to be more available, more able to be with suffering. The more we can open up fully to both dukkha and sukkha, the more we learn to abide in the balance of the fourth Brahma-Vihara, which is equanimity, the heart and mind completely at rest, which eventually culminates in the deepest possible peace of Nibbana. And all of this starts through the power of aspiration. So I'd like to close with another quote from Gil Fronstel on this power of aspiration and how cultivating sukha or happiness allows these aspirations to manifest quite naturally. He says, Buddhism recognizes many beautiful aspirations, including wishes of goodwill and kindness for others, and the desire for happiness and other wholesome qualities of mind for ourselves. Central to Buddhist practice are the aspirations for liberation and for the alleviation of the suffering of others. However, Buddhism does not require us to desire either of these. When the heart is open and relaxed, these wishes often bubble up. Both aspirations can flow through us without egotism or craving. They can seem so natural that they appear impersonal. Just as water flows downhill, so the unimpeded heart flows to freedom and service. The healthy desire for freedom and compassion can flow like a mighty river that finds its rest in reaching the vast ocean. So in this season of giving and gratitude, may we all experience the unimpeded heart of sukha, 
of ease and well-being and happiness so that our lives may be a contribution to the welfare, the happiness and the freedom of all beings everywhere. May there be peace. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.